to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am so psyched because today my guest is Sam Marks, who is the CEO of FJC, which is a foundation of philanthropic funds and donor-advised funds. More interestingly to me is he was my first boss back in the day. Uh, He hired me as an intern in 1999. How did you have such a nose for talent, Sam? That is my question. I know. I I said, this Rhea Wong, she's going places. This one's the one. Yes. We we did start off on our nonprofit journey together. We did. So exciting to be here and talking to you now that we're at this phase. Well, we're grownups now. So in all seriousness, Sam... What is it that you do, and how did you get to where you are today? So uh, I'm the CEO of this foundation. It's called FJC. Mm -hmm. Been around for about 25 years. I'm new to the role, and what's really interesting about FJC is it's about $300 million under management across about 1,000 accounts as a sponsor of donor-advised funds. It's almost like we have 1,000 little mini-foundations under our roof, and you know, what I sort of sit at the intersection of supporting the nonprofit sector and the financial services industry and sort of like a global financial capital flows. All right. Well, let, let's talk about this because when I first met you, you were the executive director of what was then Summerbridge and now has become Breakthrough New York. You were an education guy through and through. You were a teacher at the same time. And now you're like this sort of quasi-finance guy. What happened? Yeah, so I am even more surprised than you to find myself doing this kind of work and thinking so much about the dollars and cents and the financing side of the nonprofit sector. But it was kind of, I feel like I haven't left behind that commitment to youth development and community development and impact and all of the things that we want the nonprofit sector to do. It's still the reason why I'm doing everything. But I've had this kind of interesting path where I've increasingly gotten to be exposed to how the money part of the sector works. Mm-hmm. I think it started, you know, Summerbridge was hosted at that time in the 90s and early 2000s at the town school, an independent school on the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. And my first exposure to the money side of it came with one of my favorite staff people. I think you probably remember her too, Linda, Linda Larkin. Larkin. Yep. She was the business manager of town. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was an amazing mentor to me because I had my own little tiny mini budget to manage within the context of town school's budget. And she was the first person who really sat me down to think about the dollars and cents. Um, She was the one who explained to me, when you buy pencils and paper and crayons, that's an expense. When you buy a chair or a desk, you're purchasing an asset. That's something that you're not going to consume over a year. Mm -hmm. And we're going to depreciate it over time, but it's it's a different sort of longer-term movement of money. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like a light bulb to be like, oh, there's a whole industry of people and a whole expertise set of people who help nonprofits figure out how to intersect audit and finance and all that stuff. When I went to graduate school, one of my favorite classes, this was at the Harvard Kennedy School for Public Policy and Urban Planning. I took a great class with Christine Letts, who was a professor in the nonprofit management side of things. And she really asked us to 
look at audited financial statements, climb inside them, look at the balance sheet, income statement, cash flow, not just because it was kind of interesting, but because those documents could help you tell a story about an organization Mm -hmm. to connect the mission to the operations and to connect the sort of implementation of what they were trying to do with the way money came in, the way money went out. Mm -hmm. And it was just another way to analyze an organization. And and that became like a fundamental skill set in the rest of my career. Yeah, I find financials to be fascinating because at the core, you really understand what the organization values and prioritizes once you look at the financials. Absolutely. And when you're on the lending side or when you're doing due diligence, having audited financial statements means that it's like there's a third party that's come in with a set of generally accounting, generally accepted accounting principles. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're able to, to separate the story that someone's telling you from what's actually happening in the organization. When those things don't match up, that's kind of a red flag. You went to grad school, you're like, whoa, financials are super fun. And then what happened? So while I was in graduate school, I found myself gravitating towards the sector focused on affordable housing and community economic development. I became really interested in issues of inequality, different neighborhoods in places like New York City where I grew up. And fit, trying to figure out how to best intervene to address issues of, of inequality. And the affordable housing sector was fascinating because you know, it was a place where community investment, government, financial institutions, the public sector, nonprofits were all kind of collaborating to try to advance a, a public agenda. Mm-hmm. And when I was first sort of stepping into it, I, I was I was really more interested in the the softer side of that work the programmatic side urban planning side some of the some of the pieces of the work that appeal to a more kind of generalist mm-hmm. skill set but at the end of the day it seemed like the dollars and cents and the financing and the the analysis about project feasibility mm-hmm. uh, was really where the action is and where the decision makers who were driving resources into cities and into neighborhoods really had to develop that skill set. Came out of graduate school, landed at a nonprofit organization in the South Bronx mm-hmm. uh, that was focused on housing and economic development. That was called WEDCO. <clears throat> and from there, I moved to uh, to Deutsche Bank, of all places. Uh, I spent seven years in the community development finance group at Deutsche Bank. And there I got to focus on lending, investing, program-related investments, which are kind Mm -hmm. of like below market rate loans. And I got to straddle some work on the foundation side Mm -hmm. as well, making grants to community-based organizations. Mm -hmm. So at Deutsche Bank, it was this whole range of capital from grants to loans to, to investments investments. And yeah, really amazing to think about how to tailor the right type of capital to the right problems in the Mm -hmm. communities. To fast forward to now, you are now the new CEO of FJC. What is that and what do you do? So FJC is a foundation. It's a foundation primarily comprised of donor-advised funds or DAFs. The way a DAF works is you know, you set up an account at a DAF, you write a check to open the account, you move money into it. That money becomes legally the money of FJC. It's our asset. Mm-hmm. The donor gets a full tax benefit of making that donation. 
But the donor can recommend two things. They can recommend how that money is invested over time, kind of similar to like a foundation endowment. We provide them with a, a menu of investment options, kind of like a 401k plan. You can mm -hmm. look at stocks and fixed income and a range of different things. So they can recommend how that money is invested. And they can also recommend how those funds are turned into grants to organizations that they care about. Mm -hmm. You have this, the donor advised fund, but you also have another part of the house, so to speak. Tell me a little bit about the investment side. Yeah, so the investment side is how we steward the assets of our donors mm -hmm. over time. And donors can choose, like I said, to put it in stocks or bonds. Or th There are some donors, if they're big enough, they can bring an alternative investment or a hedge fund into our platform. So there's a range of ways that we can invest it. But one of the most popular ways is, and the way that we kind of put forward an impact investing opportunity is we have something called the Agency Loan Fund, mm -hmm. which is a pool of donor capital that is deployed as loans to nonprofit organizations. So it's great for the donors because their money can be put to work in the community, mm -hmm. supporting the missions of organizations. Mm -hmm. The principal and interest payments come back to their accounts, mm -hmm. so those accounts can grow. They can still make grants with it. But in the meantime, that money is out in the community supporting nonprofit organizations. We support, we lend to organizations that are doing energy efficiency work in buildings. We lend to organizations that are doing homeless services, arts organizations. It's a full gamut of nonprofits that we can lend to. Why would a nonprofit be interested in taking a loan? Like what situation would be like an example of why someone would consider a loan? It's typically to bridge some kind of commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a city or state contract for services to do some kind of public good, you're working with uh, youth after school or you're providing counseling, foreclosure. Great to have that contract, but you can't pay the bills with a contract. Mm -hmm. You can only pay the bills with cash. Many city and state contracts, for various reasons, take a long time to pay. Mm -hmm. And so many of the nonprofits that come to us have an urgent cash flow need. And we're, we're a pretty nimble, flexible organization. So we can turn a decision about a loan around in just a couple or three weeks. Mm. Yeah, I think a, a lot of nonprofits find that like a critical service to help them even out their cash flow and mm -hmm. make payroll and yeah. uh, pay their vendors. What kind of organization or what conditions would be particularly suited to uh, obtaining a loan? So the types of organizations we work with, there, there are a range of sizes, there are a range of types of missions, but they have to be credit worthy. So that means you know they have to have some experience, not necessarily being a borrower, that some of our borrowers have never borrowed money before, mm -hmm. but they have to have some ability to have a, an informed conversation about their finances and their plan to repay it. So they have to have some kind of plan to repay the loan. Mm -hmm. Typically it's, you know, we're bridging a city or state contract mm -hmm. or a capital grant. They have to be able to understand their business well enough to be able to say how they're going to pay it back. Mm -hmm. They will also need some kind of collateral. In some cases that can be a piece of real estate that we can, you know, get security on. But other times they may have be able to provide a guarantee. They mm -hmm. might have a guarantor, somebody on their board, mm -hmm. um, or some other asset mm -hmm. they can pledge as collateral. So you, you talked about the instance in which there was like a bridge gap for, you know, 
impending money coming from city or states. Are, are there any other instances in which you would consider a loan? We had a conversation with, with an organization a couple of weeks ago who we know very well. They're a very sophisticated organization. And they have some, they have some ambitious growth plans. Mm-hmm. They have some infrastructure needs around technology, around not new staff, but new equipment, new software. Mm-hmm. And they had a pretty compelling case for having this infrastructure in place was going to allow them to grow and get to the next level. A lot of those expenses they were able to fund with existing cash flow, but mm-hmm. they had a gap. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to have a conversation with them about their needs and get comfortable that they were a good credit risk and we're moving ahead with that loan. And is there a general size of loan that you're looking at or does it is it run the gamut? It runs the gamut. I mean, we have loans, we made loans as small as $10,000. Mm-hmm. We've made loans as large as 4 million. Wow. Above 4 million, we sometimes work with a, a co-lender or two. So we're pretty flexible. I don't think that's as true with most nonprofit lenders, but but that's true for us. What other lending options are there out there for nonprofits? So I mentioned, you know, FJC is a lender. Our source of capital is the the donor capital the donors provide to us to invest. But there are banks, there are credit unions, there are banks that have very focused nonprofit business lines, like Amalgamated Bank is an example. Mm -hmm. There are also community development financial institutions, or CDFIs. Mm -hmm. LISC, where I used to work, Nonprofit Finance Fund, Low Income Investment Fund. These are specialized nonprofit lenders. They're nonprofits themselves, and they lend to nonprofits. Mm -hmm. They tend to focus more on capital projects and you know, whether it's affordable housing or community centers, they like to typically lend secured against real estate, not always. And there, there are other, you know, the fund for the city of New York also will bridge city, city contracts. So there, there is an ecosystem that serves this, serves this niche. Why would an organization choose to approach you for a loan as opposed to, say, getting a bank loan or a line of credit? Bank loans are probably going to be a little bit cheaper if you can get one. The way the, the reason we are competitive is that we are very fast and nimble in terms of our decision making. Mm-hmm. We're a pretty small outfit, mm-hmm. and whereas a bank or a larger institution might have credit committees and layers of approval processes, and really they may they may have you know people making decisions about the loans that don't particularly know about the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. They may not be totally comfortable with the type of collateral or with the, the notion of a, a city contract as a, as a repayment source. Mm-hmm. But we know the nonprofit sector really well. They've been doing this for 30 years, and they can get to a decision pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, about whether it's a loan we're going to be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's the reason. I mean, if someone can, if a nonprofit has enough lead time and they have relationships with, with a bank, maybe they keep their deposits there. If they have enough lead time and they have the relationship and they can make a, a line of credit work, they should definitely do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're a great solution for organizations that their needs might be a little bit more urgent mm-hmm. and uh, we can be pretty flexible and nimble in getting to yes. You talked about in assessing credit worthiness, you know, obviously some kind of guarantee of, uh, of repayment, be it you know city or state contract, collateral. Like what else might someone need to consider if they're thinking about a loan. I mean, and I'm thinking uh, specifically around like, do you need to have a CFO? Like what other 
kinds of things do you look for when considering a loan? I think nonprofit organizations can get to that level of sophistication in a lot of different ways. You know, it can be an executive director or a board member where that expertise sits. There are organizations that become big and complex enough and the, you know, the, the business fundamentals, they might have some earned revenue and some grants and mm-hmm. they might have different revenue sources or multiple city and state contracts. Then the cash flow forecasting gets to be a little bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. You might have an investment portfolio. In those cases, we often see organizations with CFOs. Mm-hmm. But we see a lot of organizations that, that are starting to outsource their CFO function. Mm-hmm. So there are companies that can be your kind of outsourced CFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, BTQ Financial comes to mind. They, they work with a lot of organizations that we know. FMA is another one. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of different solutions that are, that are tailored to nonprofits. I should mention also another part of our business is fiscal sponsorships. Oh. And these are with organizations that are earlier in their life cycle. Mm-hmm. So these are organizations that don't have their own 501c3 mm-hmm. status. They, they may, you know, they want to get grant funding, they want to get donations, but they don't, they haven't gotten, you know, that IRS determination letter yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can act as the 501c3. We can accept the grant payments. We can pay the vendors. We can provide them with some pretty basic, you know, um, accounting of their income and expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, we have about 160 organizations we work with where we're their fiscal sponsor. And, you know, we're set up to do that because, the, you know, having a donor-advised fund, having a 1,000 accounts, we're set up to be accepting money and getting checks out the door mm-hmm. in a pretty rapid way. And so those uh, capabilities fit pretty well with the fiscal sponsorship program. And how much is this fiscal sponsorship? Because presumably you take a percentage of the revenue. Like what's the, what's the cost of that? Yeah. Our fiscal sponsorship program is pretty reasonably priced. It's generally 4 to 6% on oh, great, uh, inbound donations. Uh-huh. And the reason why we're pretty reasonable is that we're a very bare bones kind of fiscal sponsorship program. Other organizations will provide a lot more types of services or a lot of technical assistance, a lot of like really hands-on help. We engage with our fiscal sponsorship organizations a lot, and we give them lots of advice and contacts, but but it, it's done in sort of in a more informal way. So mm-hmm. we have this pretty bare-bones approach, and that means that we can provide it at a pretty reasonable price. So let me, let me back up on something that you said. You talked about uh, organizations that have a handle on their business and can explain it. I'm wondering if you can deep dive a little bit on that and explain maybe with an example if you have one. Yeah, so so I'll give you a great ex- example from my own experience, which was after I left Deutsche Bank and before I came to FJC, I spent about five years running the local New York City office of LISC, the Local mm-hmm. Initiative Support Corporation. LISC is a, a national organization that brings financing and technical assistance to low-income neighborhoods all over the country. Uh, and I ran the New York City local office. And when I started, we were in the middle of a major set of programs that we implemented after Hurricane Sandy. We had an infusion of dollars, both private dollars and public sector dollars. And these were time-limited programs around hurricane recovery. Mm -hmm. And we knew that that money was going to sort of come to an end. Mm -hmm. So when I came in, I knew I had a couple-year runway, maybe three if the contracts were extended. And 
we knew that we had to kind of like do a deep dive on our business model and figure out what was what was making money and what wasn't. We had a team of lenders that were originating loans to nonprofits. We had a team that were designing and, and, and implementing programs around mm-hmm. commercial carters and a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. And it was a very complex organization. Mm-hmm. So I climbed into the organization with the help of my fiscal manager, uh, Wilbur Gonzalez, amazing, amazing guy. He had amazing skills with mm-hmm. Excel, working with senior management. We looked at every single program that we were running, mm-hmm. and we looked at all of the grant sources that were attached to those. Mm-hmm. We looked at all of the revenues that were attached to each of the different programs. And then we looked at our costs, and mm-hmm. primarily our costs were our people power. Mm-hmm. We had a staff of 15 people, mm-hmm. and we began to estimate percentage of time that each person was spending on each program. And we were able to create this analysis that helped us look at what pieces of our operations were earning money, mm-hmm. what was in the black, what was in the red. That didn't mean we were going to just shut down the money-losing programs, but it meant that we had a much better handle on what the true costs of running each of our different program lines were. Mm-hmm. And that influenced our way of thinking about how we fundraised. It made us understand, even though we were originating loans and making like doing earned revenue types of activities, that that scale of activity wasn't going to be enough to have the whole organization operating in the black. And so we said, hey, you know, we can now, that, that's important data. We can spend more time on fundraising and making our annual gala bigger and, mm-hmm. and, and better than trying to just double our lending because right. it helped us make some strategic decisions right. couldn't have made without the data. Data-driven decision-making. You are speaking my language, Sam Marks. That's it. Marks. That's it. Last question for you, and this is a broader question, but when you think about when you started your career 20 years ago, because you have always been in these pretty significant leadership roles, and how old were you when you were running Summerbridge? I was maybe 26. Amazing. Up to this moment, so it's about 20 years in the biz, what do you think have been your biggest lessons learned around leadership and leading people? Well, it's, you know, I've been in leadership roles like I am now and at Summerbridge, but I've also been middle management. I've been a small valued member of a, of a larger team. I've gotten to play a lot of different roles in organizations. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to do is to be able to sort of inhabit different levels of different types of organizations at different scales mm-hmm. because it helps you have, Pers- yeah, perspective. gives you that range of perspectives. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think also for folks who do find themselves in sort of formal authority roles, like a top spot, executive director or CEO, it's really important to identify both formal and informal channels of communication to understand how things are going. Mm. Because there's the data points that you get in a meeting when you're asking the questions and, and mm-hmm. you're having group conversations. There's the data that you have in formal evaluation conversations. But there's so much going on that, that you may not see from your vantage point in your position of authority mm-hmm. um, and being able to develop relationships at all types of levels of an organization where people will give you honest feedback is really critical. Do you have any specific examples? Like, are you a 
walk around the office kind of a guy? Are you like, do you take folks out to drinks? Like what's the mechanism by which you get these different channels? While kind of respecting the, the formal organizational chart and having like specific assignments go through the regular channels. I also like to have kind of one-off assignments with staff at all levels, even small ones that help to develop a relationship and help me catch them doing something right Mm -hmm. so that I'm not just getting, I'm not just getting perceptions of staff and the way things are going that are Mm -hmm. filtered through, through layers. Sam, when you think about where you are today and where you first started your career, I'm curious, what is something that is the same about the way that you lead and manage and what is something that's different? I think like when I think back to my time running Summerbridge back in my 20s, I mean, I think uh, there's always that sense that when you're the head of an organization, it's kind of a lonely endeavor because there isn't anybody in the organization who kind of has the same perspective and the same amount of responsibility and the same pressures that you do. I think what's really different now in this stage of my career is that I have such a richer and more robust network of peers and mentors Mm. uh, that I can speak to who are completely outside the system of my organization. People who are running other organizations or, you know, former bosses and mentors of mine that I can ask for advice. I think having, building up that broader network of both peers and mentors is one thing that makes you feel a lot less isolated in your in your role as like an authority figure mm-hmm. and is there something that's still the same for you that all-encompassing feeling of never really putting work to the side that things popping up from your subconscious like right before you're going to bed and ideas that you have and 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 things that your your unconscious brain tells you like oh you got to pay attention to this mm-hmm. um, I definitely feel that the same as I did many decades ago well sam we are out of time thank you so much for coming on the such pod. a pleasure so fun so fun yeah and again i mean we have to talk about you know your eyes of talent <laughs>